We're going to turn in the Bible to Luke chapter 15 for our sermon text today. And uh, one of the things about the Reformation that uh, we need to keep in mind is that the time of the Reformation, in many ways the Bible was a locked up book because it was in, in Latin. It wasn't translated into the common tongue of, of the people. And it was discouraged from them even reading it for themselves. But uh, Martin Luther and many others believed that God wanted to speak directly to his people through his word. And so they wanted to make it available. Martin Luther translated the Bible into the vernacular German. And many others as well. One of my favorite stories about this is uh, that of William Tyndale, who translated it into English. And he had his Bibles in English printed, and the, the Bishop of London was very angry with this. And so he took the money of the church, he bought up all the Bibles, and, and had them burned because in, in, in London. And what William Tyndale did is had made a lot of money by printing these Bibles. So he took that money and he printed more Bibles than ever before. And so you see there, the Word of God cannot be contained. The Lord keeps bringing it forth, has a power and it has a strength. And we should be very grateful. Uh, in our day, we have it in, in so many versions, so many languages to be able to help us understand, so many commentaries. Uh, even, you know, when I was growing up, we had it abundantly available. And I remember I listened to tapes, cassette tapes, uh, the ancient artifact of cassette tapes of the Bible. But now it's like, I mean, on our, app, on our phone, I mean, we, can, we have access to whatever language, whatever version you want to listen to. You can listen to it. You can read it. You have uh, message, your phone will send you messages reminding you to read the Bible. It's like no one could say it's not available right here in this land. We have it in abundance, and uh, it's a huge blessing, and we need to take it up and profit from it. And I know that's one reason you're here today, is to consider the Word of God together with me and to seek the Lord that He might teach us. So let's look at this uh, passage, Luke chapter 15, and, and seek the Lord and what He might teach us today. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants <coughs> have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all those years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our great and glorious God, we praise you for this amazing statement of your love for lost sinners, for your love for people who need you, your willingness to receive them. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to see that and give us a heart like you, our Heavenly Father. Teach us, O Lord, each one where we need to turn our hearts towards you, encourage us, and to, to be your people and to be more like you. O Lord, we need your inner working, we need your teaching, we need your guidance, we need your help. And so we ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So what do you or what do we think about people who have turned away from God? Will God accept them back? Now, it's a legitimate question. We might immediately say, of course. But on the other hand, if we think about it, he might not. He would be within his rights. After all, how could we dare neglect the creator and the one who has given us life? It's an offense that is truly astonishing. That the one who has blessed us with everything, we would turn our back on him and seek to be in our own place. And it's amazing that we can actually downplay the, the sins that we have committed against the Lord. But how does God view the situation? What is his perspective? That's the question that the text answers for us. How does God see those who have gone away and turned away from him and would think about coming back? That's the question we want to answer in these texts. Can we go home to God? Now, this, these three stories begin with some question, or rather complaint, by the Pharisees. Because we hear at the beginning that the tax collectors and the sinners were the ones who were listening to Jesus. These are just the type of people that we're talking about, the type of people that we would see, like they have definitely rejected God, they have turned away from what he told them to do, is there any reason why God would accept him back? 
And these are the ones who were listening to Jesus. These are the ones who were hanging on his words. And this bothered the Pharisees, and they made an accusation against Jesus. It's interesting to see that as you read through the Gospels, note when Jesus does teaching, oftentimes it's not just in the abstract. It, it comes around a question or even a, a rebuke by others to Jesus, things that they think that he has said wrong or is doing wrong, and he uses those as a teaching opportunity in order to explain to them about the kingdom of God. In this case, their accusation was that Jesus was one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's an amazing statement. Jesus is the one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. And uh, it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, did, would, would people make that accusation about our church? Would people make that accusation about us individually? Could they be even scandalized by the way we might interact? Would this ever even come up amongst those who might be of a more conservative bent to say, these are the sort of people welcome sinners and eat with them? In other words, to be scandalized by that. Just a thought question. But here's the thing. Even though this is the accusation against Jesus, it's an accusation that is 100% true. He is the one who welcomes sinners and eats with them. They thought it was bad, but he was saying he, he would take this as a badge of honor, that he is the one who welcomes sinners and does eat with them. He is the one who seeks them and finds them. And so Jesus can say, guilty, in the sense, yes, that is me. But he does more than that. He wants to help them think about his own perspective and the perspective of his heavenly father. So he does this through three different stories. We'll look first here at the, at the comparison of the lost sheep and the lost coin. I want to look at those together. And then the longer story is the story of the two sons. So let's examine uh, briefly the, the comparison of, of Jesus to uh, one who has lost a sheep and one who has lost a coin. So the first is the parable of the lost sheep. And what he says is that there's 100 sheep, 99 are in the fold, and one is lost. To understand this, you have to understand that the shepherd was not necessarily the owner of the sheep. He was the watcher, he was the keeper, and he was responsible for the sheep, and he had to give an account for them. As a result, if one sheep was lost, then it was a big problem for him. He would be anxious. He would be wondering. Of course, he would even if he owned it, but also because he had to give an account to the owner. So what does he do? He's going to go look for that sheep. He's going to leave the other ones behind, and he's going to go seek to find it. And when he does, and when he does find it, he grabs it, puts it on his shoulders, come back, and he tells everybody, I thought I was in big trouble. I thought we had lost the sheep. I thought this one was going to be lost. And now we've had it. Everybody be happy. Let's rejoice. And then... Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person, persons who do not need to repent. The second story is the parable of a lost coin. In here, a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one of them. And so what's she going to be more concerned about? What's she going to pay more attention to? The nine that she has or the one that is lost? She's not going to say, well, I have nine, that's good enough. No big deal that I lost one. She's going to go look for, look for that lost coin. And then she goes after it, and finally she finds it, and she goes to her neighbors, and, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost coin. Now, one thing I say as we read these stories, they might fall a little bit flat for us because we might not feel the same 
uh, anxiety that someone would feel like losing over a silver coin or losing a, a lost sheep. So I've tried to think through the years of how to explain this. I remember when I was talking to, uh, <laughs> teaching this to my kids many years ago, and they just thought it was the funniest idea that you would say, rejoice with me, for I have found this or that. So like for the next day, any time that they would say, I lost my toy. Now I will go to my neighbor and say, rejoice with me, for I have found my toy. You know, it's like, it almost seemed like ridiculous that we would do this. So let me try to say, let me try to give you an illustration of explain how we might feel the same way. One thing you, will, one thing you know, if you travel um, to other countries, and probably even here, uh, you would have some of the same issue, is that if one thing you want to keep careful track of is your iPhone because someone may swipe it. And uh, that can happen here. And indeed, uh, someone I know was in, in Paris, uh, not this time when I was there, but in another time, and someone just grabbed it out of her hand and ran. And uh, so that, that was lost. Well, we were, entering into, we were entering into Egypt, and as you often do, get out of the plane, stop in the bathroom. We continued through the airport, and all of a sudden one of my daughters says to me, I don't have my iPhone. I left it in the bathroom there. And we were like, oh no, someone is going to grab that thing and it is gone. And so, of course, we stopped. Uh, A couple of them went back and she came back shortly. Rejoice with me, for I have found my iPhone. That was an exciting moment. To not have, not only to lose your iPhone anytime, but on the beginning of the trip, the great trip that we're going to do, what a terrible beginning, huh? So that's kind of what Jesus is talking about. And what he wants us to say is <coughs> that that's how God views lost people. That it's like they're lost, and he wants to have them back, like my daughter wanted to have that iPhone. Make sure it wasn't taken somewhere where she wouldn't have it. God loves his creation, and he's happy about it. He wants to have his people back. As he said in the book of Ezekiel, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And as Jesus said to Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God, out of his amazing love, sends his Son to the world, that whoever would believe would come back, and that is a cause for rejoicing in heaven. Now let's look at the, the last story. This is a story of two sons. A man has two sons, and the first son gets into a bad situation. What he does is he uh, decide, asks his father if he can leave the home. He wants to have his inheritance early so he can go off on his own. And he doesn't want to do it so he can, he can buy his own farm or start his own business or be independent. He basically takes everything that his father had given him, all that his father had worked for, all that would have been used for the provision of the family, and he wastes it on parties and on prostitutes, as we learn from, from the other brother. He, he takes this money that's intended to be their security in this world, to, intended to make them productive, intended to provide for their family, and he blows it all. And he, the result is that, uh, and then not only is it bad, that he's lost all his money, but then a famine comes in the land, a time when there's hardly any food available. And so he goes in desperation to do something that would have seemed horrific to most Jewish people, is to go and care for pigs, to go feed the pigs, the dirty 
animal, the unclean one, the one that they wouldn't even touch. And he's feeding them. And in the midst of this, he is, he is not only, he's not only doing it, but he's looking at what the pigs are eating. And he's saying, I'm so hungry, I wish I could eat that. So he's, he's lusting, he's coveting after the food of the pigs. And it says, and still no one gave him anything. So he didn't even have that. It's a powerful depiction of what sin can do in our lives. It is, as one person says, if I can remember it correctly, Cliff can probably help me. Sin will take you farther than you ever thought you'd go, keep you longer than you'd ever thought you'd stay, and make you pay more than you ever thought you would pay. Is that right? You've got to have that one. He's He's got a ton of those things in his repertoire. So sin, sin will keep you longer than you, so it will take you farther than you'd ever thought you'd go, uh, keep you longer than you'd ever thought you'd stay, and make you pay more than you ever thought you would pay. Um, that's one person said a while back. And it's like, and you see it, when it takes hold of us, it can bring us to the lowest level. In the midst of this, his son at the lowest level comes to the realization, look, even the servants in my father's household have it way better than this. So I've got an idea. I'll go back and I'll, I'll ask pardon. I won't ask that he just accept me back. I'll say, can I please just have the position as a servant in your household and so that I can at least have something to eat to fill my stomach? And so he makes his way back to his father, wondering what his father will say. You ever have that where you've really done wrong against someone? You know you need to go t- talk to him about it. And man, it's, it's a tough thing to do let alone against your parent who's been so good to you like this son's father. And we, when, but there's an amazing turn to the story. It says in verse 19, well, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And we see there, that the father welcomes him. He says, he confesses, the son confesses his sins and the father doesn't throw him out. He says, bring the best robe. You are my son. You are home. Let's have a party and let's rejoice. And you know, um, again, not n- fathers in this world ref- reflect the heavenly father, but they do it in an imperfect way. But I think for most, even most fathers in this world, to see, to see one of their children come back after they've done wrong with a truly penitent spirit, what father is really able to not have compassion on their children? Now, in this world, there's corruption, and I know that that's not, but so often, you know, the, the child who comes to the father is ready to be received by him. And if, if as a, that's why God says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the heavenly father has compassion on us. It's a moving story, and it's one that we can identify, identify with. And indeed, that's what Martin Luther really began to see. He always thought as a father who would not welcome him back to his home. But he began to see that the heavenly father was one who would welcome him home, who would have compassion on him and that he could go back to him, and that he would not only accept him, but that he would, adopt, he would say, you are my son, putting the best robe on him, and celebrating this son who had come home. 
That's what the Reformation is all about. It's that central point that is the key to understanding the Bible and the recovery of the Bible and the Reformation. And it's one that always needs to be at the center of the church. Whatever else we do, whatever other doctrine we talk about, whatever things we think about, however detailed we may study it, however much we may deal sometimes with church government and its inner workings, it always comes back to this central point. That Christ has died for sinners and risen from the dead so that we can go home and be restored. And we always need to keep the first thing the first thing. We need to keep that which is central, central. And that is what the Reformation is all about. It's not simply about affirming a doctrine. It's about having at the center of our hearts and lives a vision of our Heavenly Father who's ready to welcome back lost sinners and rejoice because they have returned. That is what the Bible's about. It's what the teaching of Jesus is about. And that is what was recovered through Martin Luther and the work of the Reformation. And the need for this is illustrated through what goes after. Because now we turn to the second son. It's a story not only about the prodigal son, it's also about the non-prodigal son. And the second son was the one who saw what was going on, and he was mad. Because he's angry with what his brother had done. And that's not completely unjust. He really had done some wrong things. And he was mad at it, and he refused to enter. And he complained to his father. He says, this, this waster of your money comes home, this terrible son, and you're celebrating? You haven't done anything for me to celebrate. And his father comes to him and says, don't worry. Everything is yours. But this son was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost, and he's found. And we need to rejoice. So one of the aspects of, of the emphasis of the scriptures, of the teaching of Jesus, and of the Reformation, is that we also need to guard against uh, the attitude of the second son. That our hearts need to reflect the heart of the Heavenly Father. That just as he is willing, willing to seek and save that which is lost, so we must be willing to do that. And you know, it's interesting, you can see this, when churches begin to grow and new people come in, you know what almost always happens? Is those who have been there for a while start to get anxiety, and they often start to complain. I, I've, heard, I've seen it again and again and again. And the emphasis on reaching new people often ends, to, uh, ends in some conflict in the church. Because when, when new people come in, it can be uncomfortable. It can make us feel like, what is my place? Where do I fit? And we get focused on our own needs. And sometimes it's not even illegitimate. But what this passage calls us to do is to be warned against that, that we need to watch ourselves. That we not get the mindset of the older son, and by extension, uh, the, that of the Pharisees. You know, even when we talk about being welcoming to people from the outside, you can see that some people's anxiety begins to get up, and they say, wait, we do need to make sure we don't lose the truth. We need to make sure we don't compromise the truth. And that is true. We should not to. But, we also, but what we need to do is to say we need to be on guard, as Jesus said, against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the sort of liberals. They denied a lot of the truths of the Bible. They denied the resurrection of the body and so on. They're kind of the liberals. And they have an error that needs to be rejected. They were the deniers of the, some of the key truths 
of the Bible. And he says, beware against the leaven of the Sadducees. But there's also another error, and that is the error of the Pharisees, where in standing for the truth, we end up doing it in such a way that does not welcome lost people, that sets us up over against others, and that often ends up being conservative about things we, that shouldn't be conserved. That when, when Martin Luther was bringing the gospel to bear on the church, who were those who rejected it? It was those who were the conservatives. This is the way we've always done things. And for you to accept something new is wrong. And it was uncomfortable. We can be conservative and can seek to conserve the wrong things. We have to be on guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Keep, that, keep those two things in mind. It's a warning against both uh, in the teachings of Jesus. And so, that's why we continue to, to need the Reformation. When the church has wandered from the truth, we need to call it back to the truth. But when the truth of the scriptures or our own emphasis on them becomes a stumbling block, which it can be in the way that we relate to people and the way attitudes that we have towards people or even seeking to conserve things that aren't according to truth but seem to fit in tradition, then we also need the Reformation to call us back to the central truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It challenges us in both directions, liberalism and conservatism. Now, let me just conclude by making two points to apply to your life. So, what should we take away from this? First, first, you can come home. That is the key thing here. Whatever else we do with the church or other people or our ministry, every one of us needs to hear this message. Because every one of us has been like the prodigal son. Every one of us also has refused to stand to come in at times. And we need to say the Father is willing to accept us. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, however bad your sins are, however much you've wasted what the Heavenly Father has given you, what he says is come home and he will run to meet you. That is the glorious message of the Bible. We can't extol it highly enough. And we need to tell people that. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, this is the glorious message. But then secondly, just to challenge ourselves, and and these things go hand in hand. The more we see that, the more we understand that, then we also need to see, or do we have a heart like our Heavenly Father? Is, is our life and is our church and is our work geared to seeking and saving that which is lost? Are we ready to welcome people? When people encounter us, do they, they see the face of the welcoming Father? Or do they see the face of a Pharisee? This is not just about the church. It's also about how we relate to each other in daily life. It's a sense of openness to people, a readiness to receive them, a readiness to welcome them. It's a letting go of the suspicions that just lead us to cling so tightly to our comfortable group and be like Jesus and like our Heavenly Father, who when he sees people even taking a step towards them, is ready to run to them. So we need not only to go to our Heavenly Father and experience His welcome, we also need His work within us to make us like our Heavenly Father. And that He is willing to do. And so let's ask Him. Father in Heaven, we acknowledge that
We have often not come home to you when we could have, but we need your grace to lead us back to you. We also recognize that we have often displayed towards others something that doesn't reflect the, your welcome towards others. And we need you to, by your Holy Spirit, shed the love of God in our hearts. And so, Lord, encourage us and challenge us through the message of Jesus, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.